بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله This is our October session for Ask the Imam and before we begin, I just want to put out a reminder to all the viewers and all of you as well that we need more questions because I'm running to the last maybe five or six questions on our list that are getting sent in anonymously. So the more questions, the better. Maybe you send a question that I don't get to it for a month or two because I try to organize them in batches. But inshallah, we get to it. And another reminder is the purpose of Ask the Imam is to ask me a question anonymously that hopefully we can explore here. And for me to explore that question, it has to be one for the general public. I've been getting questions from people asking about personal advice regarding marriage. I can't give that kind of advice just based on a single email. It has to be something that is shari in the sense that it pertains to um, theology, beliefs, law, principles, spirituality, history, whatever it may be like that. So we have three questions or four questions tonight. The first one is a basic fiqh question. And looking at some of the questions that I get, I'm reminded of the importance of reviewing the basics. Because we've been teaching the Fardain for a couple of years now. And sometimes the questions are really basic questions that would be basic for the person who has participated in the Fardain class or who has attended similar classes. But for someone who hasn't had those opportunities to learn, it may not be a basic question. So this question I think is really basic. It says, Assalamu alaikum. I was recently told if I'm going to work and I have to leave before Asr, I can pray 15 minutes early before the Adhan for Asr. I feel this is incorrect because prayer times are already fixed. So this is not so much a question, but I intuit that there's a question behind it. Are they correct to understand that? That would not be a valid view. What say you all? Can you pray Asr 15 minutes before Asr when you're a resident? Hmm. There might be some situations when a person has a legitimate shari excuse for combining prayers. But let's put it in this scenario. This person is healthy. They are resident. It, the weather is fine. They're not sick. And they have to go to work. Do they pray Asr 15 minutes before it comes in just so they can get to work and not have to pray Asr at work? No. No. Because the basic principle is as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, The prayers are fixed times for the believers. And there's details among the fuqaha about how we measure the different prayer times, right? By the measurement, by the, by the sun, by measuring the length of a shadow from a fixed object. So for a person who is resident, who's not traveling, 
who doesn't have a valid shari excuse such as sickness, in order for them to offer their prayers in a valid way, they have to be prayed in the proper time. So for dhuhr, that would be immediately after the midday until the time when the shadow of an object is twice its length. Once it's reached twice the length of the object, you know, a stick in the ground, once the shadow is twice the length of the object, what time is that? It's also time. So if you're praying before that, you haven't done it properly. Now there are situations where a person could do that if they're traveling or they have some excuse. But in normal situations, no. The prayer isn't a fixed time. And there are different ways to work around the difficulty of praying, uh, especially in the winter or even in the summer, praying when you're uh, at work or you're traveling to and from work and the times are narrow or expansive. There's ways around it. But one way that is that you can't use is to pray the prayer before the time actually comes in. Well, alhamdulillah, that's a very basic uh, issue. Good time to do prayer. A lot of people when they travel, they start doing the prayer before they travel. Yeah, the the qasr, you have to be out. You have to be have already left. Yeah, and uh, there are, as we said, some strategies that. If you, if you pray the dhuhr when it's still dhuhr time at a later period, especially in the summer, you pray at a later period, closer to the asr, and then shortly thereafter, 15-20 minutes later, asr comes in, and then you pray asr, you haven't actually combined the prayers, but it's almost as if you have. While you still pray both of them in their proper times, albeit praying dhuhr somewhat late, which is less than ideal, but there are some situations where that's the best way to handle uh, traveling or attending to appointments or things that are time-sensitive where you have to make a time for a certain place, but you also don't want to miss your prayers. So you have to figure out different ways if it becomes like that. Uh, the next question is actually a couple of questions, and they're, they're all from the same person. And so this is going to be an interesting question. Uh, it says, uh, Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh and team of MCCGP. Barakallahu fikum for your work. This is extremely helpful for me because I live in Germany and don't have a lot of options to learn in such a structured way. Wafikum. Uh, and if you're in Germany, I, don't, I think this question is from Berlin. Uh, get in touch with Sheikh Mahmoud Kellner. This is a good Sheikh and teacher in Germany. He's reliable. He's a good source for you who speaks your language and knows your culture and who is very well educated in deen, alhamdulillah. Uh, so she, going to the question, I wanted to ask regarding Hizb al-Tahrir. Anyone ever heard of that group? I wanted to ask about regarding Hizb al-Tahrir. I'll explain what this is. My sister is following the group because her husband does it and says, for example, that it's prohibited to vote in a non-Islamic country. So far as to say that someone who goes voting is a kafir. 
They are sometimes saying good things, but the core is often rabble-rousing against non-Muslims and the country's law while wanting to create a khilafah here. So my question is, what can I do? Or what should someone do as she is immensely influenced by her husband and the group while the group is very active in these things and propagating a lot? Well, there's a lot of issues in this question. We want to speak a little bit about what Hizb al-Tahrir is and to give some analysis, right? Hizb al-Tahrir fil mizan put them in the scale. It's no secret to Muslims that there exist different groups among us. These groups may be sectarian in nature, firaq, they adopt certain beliefs and practices that may fall outside of Islamic orthodoxy, right? We also have groups and organizations and jama'at that may not be outside of orthodoxy. They may be within Ahl-Sunnah broadly, but they have certain viewpoints that diverge from the mainstream. Sometimes there are jama'at and organizations that are within the Sunni mainstream majority, but they adopt some positions that are questionable. And those positions may either be uh, on subsidiary matters, far'iyat, Things that aren't really, uh, we would say, they're not something that expels them from the fold of, of, of Sunni Islam. And then sometimes they may have substantial differences with uh, Sunni orthodoxy that do take them outside of orthodoxy in those issues. So it's very important when we talk about organizations and groups and jama'at that we are fair in our analysis and that we are accurate in how we describe their beliefs and positions. We have to be able to explain their viewpoints accurately. As I learned from one of my teachers, if you are going to critique an idea, a belief, a person, if you're going to critique it, you have to be able to critique it or you have to be able to describe their beliefs as accurately or even more accurately than they can themselves. Meaning, if you are fair-minded in your analysis and critique, you should be able to describe exactly what that group or individual thinks exactly as they would explain it themselves. And if you can't do that, then you are lacking insaf, you're lacking fairness. Because if you're not able to describe the group or the belief accurately, what you're doing is you're strawmanning your opponent. And you know, this is a term they use, you know, the, it's a kind of fallacy. You, you describe what someone else believes, but in an inaccurate way, in a way that they themselves don't even agree with. And it's really simplistic and reductionist. You build a straw man, and once you built the straw man, because it's made out of straw, it's really easy to knock down. It's easy to refute nonsense when it's evident nonsense. But does that person actually believe that in the way that you described it? So you have to be fair. 
So we can't straw man them, and we can't refute or attack the caricature that we draw of them or any other group. We have to be able to describe people accurately. That's fairness. So when it comes to this organization, this uh, multinational, transnational organization, Hizb al-Tahrir, it becomes a bit complicated because they describe themselves as a political group. Hizbun Siyasi. You go to their official website in Arabic and in English, they give their own description. They say that they are a political group. In their official website in Arabic and in English, they say they are a political group. And they also say they're not an ideological group or a spiritual group with a particular madhab in either aqidah or law. So they describe themselves solely as a political party. If that is the case, then the beliefs of that group would will either be looked at from what's in their founding documents, what they have in their uh, primary source literature, what they've written, uh, or the individual beliefs of their leaders or founders or members, which that may differ from person to person. So it's we can only look at what they profess in their written works. The, the works of their founder, Taqiyuddin al-Nabahani, and the works of their leaders that came later on, and what they put on their official websites and uh, media. So it's a bit of a paradox, right? Uh, Hizb al-Tahrir, or as people call them, HT, they're a bit of a paradox. On the official website, they say it's a political group, not a priestly group or academic. They say it's not an educational group. They say it's not a charity group. They say it's just a political group that is calling for one thing and one thing only. It is calling for the restoration of the Khilafah, the Caliphate. Now that is a sound objective. That is a sound objective to wish to have the establishment of a righteous Khilafah. And this is not from the usul of the deen, but it is the means of supporting the deen by having that authority. So their quest for a khilafah is not a bad thing in and of itself, but the question we have is regarding the nature of the group and the means they employ to fulfill that goal. In my opinion, and the opinion of several of my teachers, Hizb al-Tahrir is basically, without trying to attack them, but it is basically a fringe, utopian, Islamist political group. And it has a utopian agenda. A utopian agenda. And when you go and look at what you know, different people say about this organization, you don't find a lot of clarity. And this is my personal opinion based on my own readings. Because there are people who object to them for good reasons and for bad reasons. And a lot of the stuff you find online especially that objects to this organization, it's often very sloppy. It's often very inaccurate. They're, they're usually building a straw man. And it's really difficult to make sense of what they actually believe just based on the words of their opponents. You have to go to the primary sources. 
So the works Al-Shakhsiyya Al-Islamiyya, which is a major work of Taqiyyad al-Nabahani, who by the way is a relative of Sheikh Yusuf Ismail al-Nabahani. I think he's his grandson, right? So I don't think it's accurate to say that the rank and file members of the organization are outside of Ahlul Sunnah. We can't paint with a broad brush like that. But in the organization, there is definitely a sense of cultishness, and it's a fringe group within the Ummah. They have nice slogans, right? That Islam al Hill, Islam is the solution. Dusturuna al Quran, the Quran is our constitution. Uh, our bylaws are the Sunnah, and the Shura is our parliament. They have these nice sounding slogans. But at the end of the day, it's more of a fringe utopian political cult that sets itself apart from the main body of the Muslims uh, as this political organization. Now, I was first exposed to Hizb al-Tahrir and their jargon in the early 90s with, by some young people uh, who were young like me, who were also caught up in a lot of the jargon of this political party. And I always found the jargon, very similar to the Marxists. Not to say that they're Marxists, they're opposed to Marxism, alhamdulillah. But the way they organize and the way they have this basic political thinking of believing that they are the vanguard and the rest of the people are the, you know, the lumpen proletariat. You know, they don't, you know, they're not enlightened to these political philosophies of the khirafah and they are the vanguard, the educated elite and vanguard, who through their political organization will uh, work to restore the Khilafah, and they want to build the awareness of the masses, the proletariat, against uh, you know, the governments in, in favor of establishing a Khilafah. So they believe they're this enlightened party. And the core philosophy of Hezbo Tahrir is that as this core enlightened vanguard, they will uh, organize for reestablishing the Khilafah and they will uh, in some manner uh, seek Nusra through the proletariat armed forces of whatever Muslim country with an armed forces that would offer them support. So it is a it is a not so hidden call for overthrowing governments. And you know, in their idea, if they find a country that has an army that is ideologically inclined towards their views, that wishes to give their party Nusra, that army would then overthrow the government and establish Khilafah somehow in whatever country they're set up in. This is the theory. I don't know how that would ever happen, but that's the theory. Uh, on the ground level, uh, from my experiences dealing with them over the years, is that if you're not open to subscribing to that political ideology, then you are seen as unreached. You know, the da'wah hasn't reached you. You're not fully enlightened. And if you're happy to belong to the main body of Muslim orthodoxy and the jama'ah, some of them even make you feel like you're not really dedicated to Islam because your life is not busy working to reestablish the khilafah that fell in 1917.
and a common experience that people have had dealing with Hizb al-Tahrir. I've had it, and many people I know have had it, is that they often diminish activities and acts of worship, devotional worship, uh, that they feel does not contribute to the reestablishment of the Khilafah. Right? That could be learning shari, sacred knowledge. That could be uh, devotional acts, whether, whether it is memorizing Qur'an or fasting or prayer or sadaqah, whatever it may be. I'll tell you a personal story. Uh, back in, I think it was 2014, I translated a book, uh, a small book on the virtues and benefits of As-Salatu ala nabi sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. Uh, Durud Sharif, a small book. And someone I know, a friend of mine, he, he had this book in his house. And he had an encounter with one of these fellows from Hizb al-Tahrir that he knew. And this Hizb al-Tahrir individual saw the book and was looking through it and reading it. And then he said, I don't see how Salat al-Nabi is going to bring back the Khilaf. I don't see what's the big deal with all this stuff. I don't see why it's so important. It's not as if it's going to bring back the Khilafah. Very dismissive of things that are beneficial, that are sacred, that are devotional, all because in their view, those things don't directly contribute to reestablishing the Khilafah. There's a sense of uh, disdain or diminishment of the importance of those things because they're not contributing to this, what they deem as the greatest goal for the Ummah the re-establishment of the Khilafah. Um, one of the things I encountered in just a very brief research into the question, because I haven't read all of the source literature, uh, one of the things I found is that the Hizb, which was founded in 1953, the Hizb has this work, it's called Al-Qanun Al-Idari, it's basically the bylaws of the organization. And the bylaws establish the inner workings of the party. And in this Qanun Idari, it positions itself as the sole source for reestablishing the Khilafah. And in that Qanun Idari work, they say, and I quote, the, its purpose is to revive the Islamic Ummah from the severe decline that it had reached and to liberate it from the thoughts, systems, and laws of kufr, as well as the laws and domination of the kufr states. Uh, beautiful, jameel, no problem there. But then we come to the next line, or a few lines down. Therefore, Hizb al-Tahrir was established, and its formation was based on the Islamic aqidah, it adopted those concepts and rules of Islam that are required to implement its aim. It has avoided the shortcomings and the causes that have led to the failure of movements that were established to revive Muslims by Islam. Here's the money quote. It therefore deserves, or it is therefore fitting, that the ummah embraces it and proceeds with it, the hizb. In fact, the Ummah must embrace it because it is the only party that digests the idea of the Khilafah. So they position themselves as the sole means of establishing the Khilafah. 
the vanguard party. And the problem with political groups is that once you get involved in political groups, you often succumb to this disease. And that disease is called hizbiyah, partisanship. And what is partisanship at its essence? Uh, and this is not just political organizations, it could be jama'at in any group, but particularly here we're focusing on the political group. Hizbiyah is essentially giving your allegiance and your loyalty to a person or a group based on other than the standards set by Allah Ta'ala and His Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And to disavow and distance yourself from people or individuals not based on the standards of Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but based on the party line, right? You know, so for every Muslim, we owe every single Muslim uh, our wala, our allegiance and loyalty uh, based on how close they are to the deen. And we would give them bara or bara, you know, disavow of their actions and behaviors based on how distant they are from the deen. But the standard of that allegiance and disavow is always one standard. What is that standard? Allah wa Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It is the divine standard. But when you have an organization, a political party, a jama'ah, Oftentimes, for the members of the organization, their allegiance or their disavowal is based on the party standard, the standard of the group. So whoever is closer to the group, I give them more allegiance. Whoever is at odds with the group, I'm at odds with them, even if they haven't done anything that is deserving of disavowal. They just, maybe they just don't like the group. Maybe they're not interested, right? So once you start placing your loyalty and disavow outside of the standard set by Allah and His Messenger وسلم, you have what is called hizbiyah, partisanship, right? As a Muslim, you have rights and I have rights. I can't deny you rights just because you, know, you like this political party back home. Even if I disagree with you. Even if I think that person's a charlatan and a, and a puppet or whatever, th- does that mean that because you like that person, I shouldn't give you your, your hukuk, your rights? No. Me giving you your rights is because you are a Muslim, not based on your allegiance to this group or that group. So this is one of the big problems with these organizations and parties is that they become a fringe element where they look down on the main body of the Muslims because they're not as enlightened as they are. And this is the problem that Hizb al-Tahrir has. Now, this organization was established in 1953, 1371, by Taqiyyad al-Nabahani. And I can concede that he was alim, alim, he was a scholar, but where I don't concede, where scholars don't concede, is that he is a mujtahid. And he is dealing with work that is very high level and requires ijtihad. So the belief of most of the ulama regarding this individual, rahmatullahi alayhi, is that he had a good intention 
but he did not have the level of ijtihad that would equip him to tackle these major issues such as re-establishing the Khilafah for the entire Ummah. That's a big task. And we don't believe that he was an actual mujtahid qualified for these things. And if we look at history from the time of the founding of the party until now, it's not as if it's winning seats in parliament and taking over countries. It's been an abysmal failure from day one. All that has created are pamphlets, booklets, leaflets, conferences, and lots of talking about the Khilafah, but no actual Khilafah. So there's very little tawfiq given to this organization. And they don't have authority anywhere. And you know, though we have our differences with that as a political philosophy or the means they use, it's still our brothers, still our sisters. And in many Muslim countries where they exist, they're often very brutally treated. In places like Uzbekistan, they were taken and tortured and imprisoned. And there's no reason for that to happen because they're not people of violence. They're not people who called for violence. They called for political agitation and political awareness, but they're never people who called for violence. So they don't deserve to be imprisoned. They don't deserve to be tortured like they were in some of these Muslim countries. Uh, so we can differ, differ with them while also recognizing that there are brothers and sisters and that individuals among them will have various ideas, some of whom are closer or further to the general body of orthodoxy. So we can't paint with a, a broad brush and say everyone's, everyone's mubtadi'a, deviant, and all of that, nor, nor do we say that they're all 100% correct in their ideas. It's, it's, it's a mixed bag, and it's a bit of a paradox. So that's my view regarding Hizb al-Tahrir and its ideas. As far as individual members, there's lots of good people. And people get caught up in groups and they get inspired by them. And after some years, they grow out of them and mature Islamically. And they move on. And that happens a lot. So going back to the sister's question. Uh, she says that, uh, I presume this is a sister. Uh, she says, my sister is following the group because her husband does it and says, for example, that it's prohibited to vote in a non-Islamic country so far as to say that someone who goes voting is a kafir. I am not aware of that being a core belief of Hizb al-Tahrir. I know they have a view about voting in general, but as far as judging people as kafir for voting, I myself have not heard that from them. Maybe individuals have embraced that idea, but I don't know that it's an official belief adopted by the party itself. I don't believe so, but I, I stand to be corrected. She says, or he's, I think this is a she, they are, some, they, are sometimes, they are sometimes saying good things, but the core is often rabble-rousing against non-Muslims in the country's law while wanting to create a khilafah here. So my question is, what can I do? Or what should someone do as she is immensely influenced by her husband and the group? while the group is very active in these things and propagating a lot. So the, there's a voting issue. I'm going, to take, I'm going to take that into the next question because uh, the next question is just about voting. It's from the same person. So I just want to talk about the issue of what to do for your sister. As for what you can do for your sister, who 
from my understanding, is a part of the party because her husband is a member and seems to be a very active one at that. My advice is that the best thing you can do is to take the means to guide your sister. And those means, first and foremost, is to make du'a for her. Make du'a for her and for yourself for guidance and clarity. But also to take the means of educating yourself about the ideas of Hizb al-Tahrir. And that means understanding the positives and understanding the negatives so that when you talk to them, you talk from a place of understanding and clarity. Not going on this website or that website, which strawmans the party. Like I, You'll see all sorts of nonsense, things that they explicitly reject. People keep saying they believe it, right? That's not fair. So you want to know exactly what they believe. What, what, what are their ideas? And based on that, you can give sincere advice. And you give sincere advice based on an accurate understanding of what they're about, the pluses and the negatives, hopefully with some alternative, maybe some alternative in the community, something else she can do to fill her time and grow Islamically. So with dua and with your own self-education so that you can speak clearly about the, the group and looking for an alternative, the last thing you have to do is give it time. People don't just change at the drop of a dime. Very seldom do people just embrace an idea, a jama'ah, a party, a belief, and just drop it like that. It usually takes time for it to develop, and it takes time for it to be unpacked and for them to grow out of it and to embrace something more holistic and healthy. Right. So you have to give it time. It takes time for people to come out of cults. I do believe that Hizb al-Tahrir is a cult. But the nature of the organization as a transnational party is that the level of dedication to the cult will vary from location to location. If you're a fan of Hizb al-Tahrir and you're living here in the city of Pittsburgh and there's only you and two other people who are into this organization, even though it's a cult, you're probably not living with the cult mindset day in and day out because you're isolated here. But if you're in a place like uh, L.A., in Orange County, or in New York, where they have larger, uh, you know, larger numbers, or uh, Illinois, where they have larger numbers, uh, Michigan, then there's a good chance that you may get wrapped up in the cult mindset. Here's the jama'a, here's the amir, here's our duties, and here's the work that we do. And you feel embraced by this little small community because it gives you a sense of purpose and you feel you're doing something good and you're connecting with people. Beautiful things, but it's serving an ideology that ultimately uh, it's a dead end and it becomes a cult where you're isolated from the broad body of the Muslim community. It's sometime, it takes time for people to come out of cults. And there's an entire science to helping people out of cults. I'm not saying Hizb al-Tahrir is one of those doomsday cults where they're going to be held up in the mountains with all of their supplies waiting for doomsday. But I mean cult in a more, generous, more general sense. So hopefully, with time, they can find a more holistic way to practice Islam. And when they eventually leave, they'll have something to fall back on with your support, inshaAllah ta'ala. Okay.
Next question is related to this, but it's also broader in that it's not just about Hizb al-Tahrir as a party. This question is from the same person. They say, Assalamu alaikum. I wanted to ask if it is permissible in a non-Islamic country to participate in elections here and vote for non-Muslim groups or parties. Right? Have you ever heard of anyone saying that it's haram to vote in democratic elections? Anyone ever heard that? Anyone ever told you that if you do it, you become a kafir? Anyone ever tell you that if you do it, you're a mushrik? I've heard all of those things. Those ideas exist. They, they exist out there. Uh, and we should look at that. So there's a couple of issues. There's the ruling on participating in elections, democratic elections in general, in Muslim countries and non-Muslim countries. There's the issue of running for office in these systems. Uh, there's the issue of whether or not it is uh, shirk or kufr, as some people claim, whether it is permissible or impermissible. And if it's permissible, what are the guidelines? So it's a very detailed question. So, yes, there are some people who say that voting in democratic elections, whether it's in a Muslim country or in a non-Muslim country, is considered haram, unlawful. And some even go as far as to say that it's shirk. Because in their minds, if you vote for someone to take office, that person in office is going to contribute to legislation. Tashri'ah, and they say, well, Tashri'ah is the exclusive right of Allah. And therefore, a person who is legislating is committing shirk in what is an exclusive right of Allah, which is legislation. Therefore, to vote that person in is to contribute to shirk. Therefore, if you vote in an election, you become a mushrik and kafir and halal dam. That's the logic. So, before answering that, we have to understand reality. If you are living in a non-Muslim country, and the questioner is living in Berlin, Germany, and we are here in the U.S., if you are living in a non-Muslim country, you have three choices to make. Three choices. You either stay willingly, whether it's Berlin, Germany, or here, or anywhere else in the West. You stay willingly. Or number two, you don't want to live in these places anymore, so you make hijrah. You migrate to a Muslim country. The third option is you stay unwillingly because either there is no place to make hijrah to, or you don't have the means to make hijrah to a Muslim country. So you, you, still st you still stay here, but you're not doing it willingly. You don't really want to be here, but you have no choice. These are the three options before us. 99.9% .9 of all Muslims in the West are taking what choice, do you think? One, two, or three? Three. I think there are some people taking three. But I think 99% are taking number one. Most people are. 
Obviously, refugees are taking number three. And maybe they take number one at some point. There are people who take number three. And they end up taking number one over time. Right? But 99% of people who came here came here willingly. They weren't refugees. And they stay here willingly. They have accepted that this is home. They have accepted that they're living in lands where the Sharia is not in force. So this conversation becomes a little awkward because you know, here I am. I, I'm sitting before all of you. Uh, and with the exception of, I don't know, were you born here? Yeah. So we have three categories of people. We have people who uh, immigrated here. Then we have the children of those who immigrated here, like yourself. And then you have people like me who were, bo- were born here, whose parents were born here, whose great, 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 great parent, grandparents were born here going back maybe even hundreds of years. We don't have a home to go to. This is home, right? So most of Muslims have accepted, those who have migrated here, that they're living in lands where Sharia is not in force. If you live here and accept that situation, and you accept that it's less than ideal, you still have three main duties to uphold. You live here willingly, and you acknowledge that despite this not being a perfect place by any means, despite the fact that Sharia is not enforced, you still have three areas of responsibility in your own life. Number one, fulfilling the fard ayn in your own life, the individual obligations and deen in your own life. Number two, fulfilling the community obligations, the furud kifaiya, the community obligations, uh, as best as you can in the areas where you can. And number three, promoting good in society. These are your three areas of responsibility. If you live here, you need to fulfill your personal obligations, try to fulfill community obligations as best as you can, where you can serve the best and promote good in society. You can, only promote, you can only fulfill these three by being strong individually as a person, being strong in a community, and that community, in order for you to serve for the, the greater good in society, that entails some measure of participation in the society you're in, in trying to make it better. So that is where we get to the topic of voting. I personally speaking, I have a very, very dim, pessimistic view about federal elections. I personally don't think they make much of a difference. Not to say that people shouldn't vote, not that I discourage it or even encourage it. It is what it is. That's my opinion. I don't I think whoever's voted in, the bad guys are still in power, you know, the deep state. I believe the deep state is real. It doesn't matter who's in power. So I have a very dim view about federal politics. But I don't think that's the case for state politics as much. And I definitely don't think that's the case for local municipal politics. That is where you can actually make a big difference if you are participating, if you are active. Whether that is the school board, uh, whether that is city council, you know, the mayor, whatever, in the local politics. That's where you can make your impact most felt. And then in the state level, and then federal, uh, it's a dirty game. I don't think Muslims should get involved in it because those who get involved get compromised and they end up losing their deen 
nine times out of ten. So as far as the ruling on voting itself, I'll give you not my own personal answer, but I'll give you the answer by Al-Majma' Al-Fiqhi. Al-Majma' Al-Fiqhi, we've cited them a few times before. This is the Fiqh Council from the Muslim World League, and they assemble different conferences, um, gathering dozens and dozens of expert scholars and other subject matter experts, where they hash out many detailed issues and pronounce collective judgments on these issues. The Majma' al-Fiqhi, I believe it does important work because it's, it's not a single voice. It's not the voice of a single alim that one may agree or disagree with. It becomes the collective voice of multiple ulama in consultation with subject matter experts. So it's not ijma'ah by any means, but it's a collective verdict which ends, gives it a lot more strength than an individual verdict. So Al-Majma' al-Fiqhi had a detailed meeting just on the issue of voting in elections. And this is what they said. They said, whether Muslims participate or whether Muslims should participate in elections and politics of a country should be regarded as a religious issue and it should be decided based on what will achieve the maximum benefit for the Muslims. And this ruling may differ from time to time and place to place. Meaning, there are some times where it is highly advisable to do so because of the political climate and the candidates and the openness. But in other times or places, it may be less advised because of the way the candidates or situation at hand. Number two, they say, it is permissible for a Muslim citizen in a non-Muslim country to participate in elections, here they mean run, if clear benefits are achieved by doing so, such as presenting the correct image of Islam to the people, defending Muslims' interests, protecting their rights, putting them in positions of influence, and cooperating with friendly moderates in achieving justice. And this would apply to voting as well, that you are selecting, you know, it's always going to be a lesser of two evils, but you're selecting one that is most likely to bring the greatest maslaha, uh, not even just to Muslims, but to society as a whole. And they mention this and they say that if you're going to vote, there are some guidelines you should observe. They say, number one, the Muslim who participates must do so with the intention of achieving benefits for the general Muslim population and protecting them from harm and injustice, right? So you're looking at securing maslaha by voting, is what they say. Number two, there must be a reason to reasonably expect that participation in the political process will have positive effects for the Muslims in the country in question, such as strengthening their influence, protecting their interests, and allowing their concerns to reach those in charge. So it, you have to have some reasonable, you know, reasonable expectation that it's going to make a difference uh, or it's going to tilt the scale in some way for your benefit. Uh, lastly, they say participation in these elections 
should not lead to neglecting religious duties. Therefore, if it is anticipated that by participating in elections, this can result in the minimization of corruption, mischief, hostility against Muslims, oppression, and injustice which is prevalent in the country, then he should participate with that intention. So participating in elections and voting all goes back to this principle of uh, securing and seeking the greatest maslaha and seeking to avert evil. It, go, it goes back to that. As for the claim that voting is somehow tantamount to kufr and shirk, we can answer that very easily. Which do you think is a more effective means of nusra, of, of aid and help? Casting a vote for someone or making dua that Allah gives victory to that person? Making dua. Making dua. If you cast a vote, I mean, it might, it might get counted, it might not get counted, you know, it might not tilt the scale. You know, in the big picture, you know, maybe it benefits, maybe it doesn't. But dua benefits. And if you make dua for someone, it is a kind of nusrah, it's a kind of help, right? So if we, if we concede to that, that premise, that dua is a greater form of nusrah than casting a vote, we can easily answer the claim that voting is kufr or shirk. We go to the seerah of Ibn Hisham. Uh, and other Sira works which describe the Muslims' migration to Abyssinia, Habasha. When the Muslims migrated to Abyssinia and they were living there in peace and security, they were living as minorities, Muslims living as religious minorities in a Christian land. And this is before the Najashi became a Muslim. In the Sira of Ibn Hisham, it mentions that some civil strife arose in society where one of the relatives of Najashi was rebelling against Najashi with an army. And there was a civil war between Najashi and his forces and this rebel group and their forces. And the Muslims who had migrated to Abyssinia were very fearful because if Najashi was defeated, then there was a very strong chance that they were going to be persecuted as Muslims and sent back to Mecca to suffer persecution. So it mentions in the narration that as the Najashi was fighting with his forces against this rebel group, the Muslims were staying out of the fight. They were on some small island seeking basically to shield themselves. And they're floating across the river to get to this island. And they're making dua the whole time they're on this island as the fight is going on, asking Allah Ta'ala to give victory to Najashi because through him justice is secured for them. And Allah Ta'ala answered that dua and gave victory to Najashi and they were able to stay. They weren't persecuted. Now, if you say that dua is offering support, you would have to concede here that this means that the Sahaba, through their du'a, were offering support for who was at the time still a 
kafir, a disbeliever. And there's no condemnation of this. There's nothing haram in their action whatsoever. So if a person casts a vote because they believe that this person, although they're not perfect, they believe that based on the facts, they will be best at securing the greatest benefit and averting the greatest harm, the most likely to do so compared to the other candidates. And they make that judgment in order to secure that benefit or to avoid that harm. They're not doing it with the, any intention of this person being a legislator, besides Allah, uh, to help kufr ala al-iman or anything like that. They're just looking to secure benefit and avert harm. And their act is analogous to what the Muslims did uh, in Abyssinia in making dua for Najashi when he was not yet a Muslim. So not to say that that is analogous to voting in every way, but it is a kind of nusra, like voting could be a kind of nusra. As far as people who don't want to participate in elections because they don't believe in the whole system, uh, they don't believe it's beneficial. I, fair enough, you know, it's everyone's choice. But what one does not have a right to do is excommunicate Muslims and claim they're kafir and murtad because of doing something that has a legal basis according to the majority of the ulama and that is done with the intention of securing the greatest benefit and averting the greatest harm. No one has the right to, to make that kind of takfir and blanket judgment on people who participate in elections. And the irony, the irony is that some of the people doing this the most are people who are living off the government, living in Europe, living in the UK on the dole, living in Germany, living off of government stipends. And the same government that feeds them and pays their rent is the same government they're uh, attacking and claiming anyone who votes for it is a kafir. And it's just the, 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 the cognitive dissonance is astounding. Like I would, to, I would totally respect someone who says, who believes that and packs their bags and leaves. I, I really would. But for a person to live like that willingly, it is, it, it's, it's cognitive dissonance. It's cognitive dissonance. Be real with yourself. Be honest. Be sincere. If you really sincerely believe that, okay, good, fine. Go. You can leave. Like, don't live in this cognitive dissonance where you benefit from, you know, you bite the hand that feeds, feeds you and you behave in this duplicitous way and then you want others to have the same attitude. It doesn't work. So, uh, that will be the end for this month, inshallah. Uh, we just tackled three questions, but they were kind of detailed. Uh, inshallah, next month we'll probably take a good number more, mostly questions that we have. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Are there any follow-up questions? Asr time? What about Asr time? Oh yeah, Hanafi, Asr. Yeah. Well, that's what I tell, that's what I tell uh, young people. I say, if you're going to miss Asr because of your bus schedule in school, in the winter time specifically, when the time is very narrow, uh, take the Hanafi view. You know, the, the usuliyun say that a person can do that kind of talfiq of borrowing from the madhab because it's not borrowing 
to get something you want of shahwa, it is to facilitate being in ta'a, in obedience to Allah and not in sin. So let them take that view so that they pray asr as soon as they get home, or sorry, they pray dhuhr when they get home, giving them a window before asr comes in, in the later asr according to the Hanafi view. Yeah. I mean, it's a legitimate view. So the, the view of Shaykh Khan. Mm-hmm. Right, because I mentioned in the answer that the khilafa, or the or let's be more accurate and say the imama is not from usul al-din. It's not from usul al-din. It's from furur. So it's a fiqh issue. What takes priority over furur are usul, and usul are matters of belief, convictions, belief regarding Allah. Belief regarding the prophets and messengers and the unseen realm. These things are the usul. The usul of sharia, you know, of, of basic halal and haram, al-ma'loom and al-deem al-darura, personal obligations that everyone has to attend to. Um, the imama is important, but it is not from the usul of the deen. And we're, not, we're not shia. That's the shia belief that imama is from the usul of the deen. And, you know, their, their belief... Uh, and that it is from the usul of the deen They have that belief for a very specific reason Which is different from our belief Regarding the function of the khilafa The function of the khalifa And you know if you want to take the Hizb al-Tahrir argument And um, you know, pick it apart a little more You can say uh, Okay when, has the Muslim, when have the Muslims actually had a single khalifa? When's the last time? Hmm? No. Yeah, exactly. Because even during the Ottoman Empire, were the Ottomans ruling the entire Ummah? Like there, you have you have the uh, Dawlat al Alawiyah in in Morocco. They've been ruling for a very long time, and they're still ruling. So, if we're conferring legitimacy to a nation state or to a kingdom that's ruling like a Khalifa or a Sultan. After the Ottomans, they still exist, right? And Mamlakatul Hashimiyah still exists. So why not give them Nusra and just say, okay, let's try our best to try to establish deen in society. No, they don't want that because they just want to do their own thing. And they believe that there's, you know, there has to be this united khilafa that spreads across the entire ummah, which is a good ideal, but it's a utopian ideal because the reality is, and this is my sincere belief, that actually is not going to happen until the latter age, according to the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, where he said that the beginning of this affair will be khilafa ala minhaj al right? After that comes al mulk al the tyrannical kingship. And then you have later on a return to that khilafa ala minhaj al but that is during the time of the Imam Mahdi. Right, so it's it's a thorny issue, and one should not pin their entire religious identity on khirafa and you know clamoring for reestablishing the state. Especially if you're living here, you know, you got your nine to five. You're living in America. Like, what exactly do you think you're going to do here to reestablish the khirafa on a practical level? What is it? If you have something practical, marhaba. 
NFL providers will be exactly. Yeah, exactly. As a one sheikh said, if you want the Islamic state, you need the state of Islam. You know, halul Islam fika. You know, 